Welcome back for part two of the Brenda Sue Schaefer story. This is Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew. And where we left off last time, Brenda Sue Schaefer had gone missing. The police really believed Mel Ignato was the culprit. They were having trouble proving it. They didn't have any evidence against him. And they had just decided to kind of zero in on his acquaintance, Marianne Shore. So that is where we will pick up today. By February 1989, police knew Marianne was their weak link. She was their in. She just had to be broken down. Marianne had written some bad checks in the past, so they knew they could use that against her if she didn't start talking, but they needed to wait till the right time. She did agree to come in and take a polygraph, and when they told her that she failed it, she got really upset and angry, and she asked to go home, and at the time, they were like, all right, let's go ahead and and get her out of here for now. So an FBI agent drove her home but stuck around to see what she did next after being dropped off. And what do you know, she called Mel immediately. So she met with Mel, and the two walked together in the rain, and Mel appeared mad. And at that point, they were like, all right, let's go ahead and arrest her. This might scare her into talking, plus we can do it right in front of Mel and, you know, maybe stir him up too. But he stayed calm, and he told her not to give them any trouble. And at 12.45 a.m. on Valentine's Day, she was put in jail for five outstanding warrants for writing bad checks, each of which was under $100. But she still wasn't talking, especially not to Detective Wesley, since he'd you know, come down so hard on her in the past. So Marianne's brother called local attorney Jack Viditao to represent her. And the next morning before her arraignment, the FBI tried to get her to take another polygraph, but this time Vitatow said no way. Meanwhile, Dr. Spaulding, Brenda's employer, was growing increasingly paranoid that Mel was after him since he was so vocal about Mel being the one who did it. He bought more than $1,000 worth of ammunition, and everybody said he just looked really bad like he was just coming undone and things get weird here so dr spaulding had quote arranged for a letter sent to ignato from miami saying mel would be executed by cubans unless he sent information about brenda to a louisville post office box within two weeks the death threat arrived at Ignato's house by Purolator Courier about 4.30 p.m. on Wednesday, March 22nd. The two-page letter was single-spaced, neatly typed, but rambling and nonsensical. It wasn't until the second page that the execution was mentioned. Now, Dr. Spaulding had actually read this letter to police during a prior interview. He was kind of trying to help them you know he thought he was being helpful and he was just kind of off his rocker and they told him outright that he would have to be arrested if he mailed that letter five thousand dollar fine a year in jail like please don't mail that letter but he did and when mel received the letter charlie ricketts helped make arrangements for mel to be guarded by a swat team 
Meanwhile, Mel had started dating yet another woman. This time, it was a 45-year-old named Barbara McGee. They would go on to date for five months, and she was convinced he was innocent. Oddly, Mel showed up at Barbara's house one night in late March with a bag of sex toys, telling her that he thought the police would be searching his house soon, and he just didn't want them to see all his, you know, personal stuff. That same day, Mel went to the Hall of Justice to sign a warrant against Dr. Spaulding for terroristic threatening. He was also considering filing a civil suit against him. Then he moseyed on over to Jewish Hospital, believing that he had just had a heart attack. So that was a big day for Mel. And on March 29th, Dr. Spaulding was admitted to the psychiatric ward of St. Joseph Hospital in Lexington, where he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and mania. In August of 1989, almost a year after Brenda went missing, Dr. Spaulding did go on trial for the civil suit filed by Mel himself, which meant Mel would also take the stand. And it was a big deal. Heavy media coverage, lots of FBI present. Dr. Spaulding's attorney had the opportunity to question Mel, and he grilled him on his relationship with Brenda. Um, Spaulding was found guilty. And a lot of people, including John Schaefer and Assistant U.S. Attorney Scott Cox, were disappointed. Scott Cox had taken a special interest in Brenda's case, and he was convinced Mel was guilty. He was briefed on her, her case by um, Agent Mari Berthon, and he went to the Spalding trial kind of to represent him in the, in the case. So he was there to study Mel under pressure. And he reported back to the FBI that Mel did really well. He stayed calm. He acted very collected. So that was point Mel. Now, he also met Charlie Ricketts at the trial. And after they spoke, uh, Scott Cox took some time to process all the new information he was learning about the case. And the more he thought about it, the more he was sure that Mel would have needed an accomplice if he did what they think he did. So he was thinking this was a two-person job. He came up with an idea to ask Ricketts if Mel would be willing to testify in front of a federal grand jury. Maury Berthon thought it was a great idea. Cox told Ricketts that this would be to his client's benefit if Mel did as well in front of a grand jury as he did at Spaulding's trial. Um, they would be more willing to move on to look at other suspects in the investigation and take the heat off him. So he was like, you know, your client needs to do this to make himself look good, basically. Also, local newspapers were just basically calling him guilty at this point. So this would really be to his benefit or could be if he did a good job. Mel agreed to testify before a federal grand jury, and a date was set for October 16th. Mel went before 21 jurors for four hours, which produced over 200 transcript pages of testimony. He was asked if he'd had sex with Marianne Shore in the time since Brenda's death, to which he replied, yeah. 
The grand jury hearing also revealed his less than ideal financial situation. He had 26 grand in credit card debt. He had no income. He had mortgages to pay. He was also on three heart medications. Um, He said he'd been drinking a lot. He said he'd considered committing suicide. And then he talked about finding God. And when asked outright if he killed her, he said, quote, no, absolutely not. I did not kill her. I would not have laid a finger on that woman. Such a weird, that woman. Um, Attorney Scott Cox felt like the grand jury had been a mistake afterwards. He did really well. Nothing crazy was revealed. The one bit of information he was happy to have was that Mel and Marianne had been intimate recently. Cox was starting to believe that Marianne was directly involved in Brenda's disappearance. Like I said, he was thinking it was a two-person job. So he decided they needed to put her on the grand jury list next. On January 3rd, 1990, Marianne Shore was called to appear before the grand jury. She was stressed about this. She told her attorney, Jack Fittitow, she didn't understand what they wanted with her. She'd already told them everything she knew about the case and her attorney said you know whatever you do don't lie up there don't commit perjury so while this was going on mel was finding god like he had told the jury Um, he had joined southeast christian church and became active in their singles group that was called um, b-y-k-o-t-a be ye kind to one another (laughs) so that was a thing And he, I guess, went out with a lot of women from this group, um, made some friends, uh, but others said they felt uneasy around him. So kind of a weird detail. Um, One of the ministers warned him that he had to tell the truth about Brenda before he joined the church, and he swore he didn't do it. So they baptized him. But things weren't going all that well because a few weeks before Marianne was supposed to go before the grand jury, police got a phone call from Mel's mom, Virginia, saying that Mel had locked himself in his very fancy bathroom and taken too much Valium chased with vodka and was attempting suicide. So he was rushed to the hospital, but he was out and about a short time later. So just kind of interesting. He, uh... He was finding God, but also, I guess, a little depressed. Um, By the time Marianne was called to testify, she had a new boyfriend, she had a new apartment, and she had a new physical appearance. She had gained a lot of weight and apparently just let herself go. And her new beau was a 50-year-old man named Charles Imlow. He'd recently divorced his wife of 30 years, with whom he shared six kids. So... Gosh, Marianne had a lot on her plate. As she prepared, her attorney once again reminded her not to tell any lies. Attorney Scott Cox grilled her on her past relationship with Mel, if she'd met Brenda, and who she was seeing now. And then Cox asked her to describe Brenda, and she froze, totally iced up. She said, quote, when I saw her in the bar, and he said, did you ever see her again other than that? To which she replied, no. So he said, then describe her from then. At which point she asked to speak to her attorney. 
By the way, the bar she said she'd last seen her in, the one and only time she said she'd met Brenda was Jim Porter's. So she went out and told her attorney what they'd asked her, and he was like, okay, well, what's the problem here? Like, why, why can you not answer this question? And she just froze up again and asked for a cigarette. She went back in, and immediately he asked, uh, Scott Cox asked, why are you uncomfortable answering questions describing Brenda Schaefer? She said, because I don't know. All I know is she had dark hair. I don't know how to describe her. By then, Cox and the other attorneys were sure Marianne was involved. The following day, they called her attorney and warned, warned him that she would eventually be prosecuted and probably receive the death penalty and that she should just cut a deal with them and get ahead of this thing. On January 9th, 1990, Marianne Shore was accompanied by her lawyer, Jack Vitatow, into the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they were joined in a room by FBI Special Agent Deirdre Fike and U.S. Attorney Scott Cox. And they had to bring Agent Fike in because Marianne already distrusted all the other law enforcement agents involved. She didn't like any of them, so they needed someone new, someone that could build trust with her. So there were a couple other lawyers in the room as well. And part of the reason she agreed to meet with them was because they told her it could be off the record. And so one of the very first things she said was, quote, I'm afraid of Mel. And, you know, the mood was tense. Everybody was trying to feel each other out. And they took a quick sidebar. So Marianne went out into another room with her attorney alone. And she broke down. Finally, there would be a break in Brenda Schaefer's case. So she asked him, quote, Well, what if I did know something? Suppose I know where she is. And he said, quote, Then you've got to tell them where she is. To which she replied, quote, Suppose I know where she's buried. So well over a year after she'd gone missing, Marianne had just confirmed that Brenda was dead. But this story isn't even halfway over. There are so many more twists and turns. So Jack, her attorney, sat with her trying to assure her that the best thing to do was to tell this to the FBI. They could protect her. They would keep her safe. Safer than she was with him out in the world, knowing that she knows his secret. So I'm going to read a paragraph now from Double Jeopardy to explain what she told the FBI during her initial confession. Quote, Mel Ignato brought Brenda Schaefer to her house, sexually tortured and murdered her, then buried the body in a grave behind her house. Shore was nervous, dwarfed by her surroundings, the moment. Under questioning by Cox, Shore said she was in her kitchen when Brenda died, but she did help carry the body to the woods. She gave few details beyond that. So Cox had to work with this information. He convinced her with just this alone, Mel's defense could easily make it look like Marianne had motive and that she was actually the killer, not Mel. What they really needed was for Marianne to wear a wire and get a confession from Mel, and she agreed not really having much of a choice. 
So they had to get a hold of someone from the Commonwealth Attorney's Office to get someone to come in and make a deal with Marianne and her attorney. And the man they got was Attorney John Stewart, who, as Bob Hill puts in his book, quote, walked into a whirlwind. As you can imagine, there was so much excitement over getting a break in this case, there was a huge sense of urgency. So Vitatow entered a room with John Stewart to make a deal. And he was so confident at first because he knew they needed Marianne, so he suggested a misdemeanor for her. And Stewart said, yeah, I don't think so. He said they would offer one charge of tampering with evidence, a Class D felony carrying a one to five year sentence. And they would also let her recant earlier statements so as not to get a perjury charge. With this, of course, she had to agree to testify. And if she did anything wrong or did, didn't do something they needed her to do, the deal was off. And they accepted. Some people felt like this deal was too easy on Marianne. So here's what Stewart later said about it. Quote, you have to go with your gut. My gut was I had a U.S. attorney's office who felt things were copacetic. The FBI felt comfortable. I had the lead police unit in the county and the state comfortable with it. We don't find there's any reason to disbelieve her at the time. This is the break we've needed. If she could deliver the body, we could figure out a cause of death, charge Mel. Hopefully when she was wired, he would make some incriminating statements, which would just put icing on the cake. If she's lying, we can come back and nail her. Shortly after the confession, FBI Special Agent Mike Griffin entered the scene. Griffin had been in charge of the Louisville unit handling Brenda's case the previous year, and while they were trying to figure out what their next move was going to be, Griffin said the FBI would go and wire Marianne's apartment. So police and FBI took off to Marianne's apartment disguised as repairmen to set everything up. And while they worked, Marianne agreed to lead police to the body. So they went to a spot that was about 200 yards directly behind Marianne's old house. They came upon an old small shed sitting on swampy ground. It was obviously a pretty secluded area, lots of debris, overgrown shrubbery, discarded appliances. And when she thought they'd found the spot, they taped it off and they called the medical examiner. And they took Marianne back to her apartment. And then... 11 months after her major falling out with Detective Wesley, he met her back in her apartment. So that was probably a very tense moment, but everything was in place. They were finally ready to catch Mel in a lie. There were agents hiding in bedroom closets in case Mel got violent. And at 4.05, Marianne called him and he told her he didn't want to meet at her place but at Erler's Ice Cream, a few miles north on Poplar Level. And he got off the phone quickly, and she didn't even try to negotiate. She just caved. So hours of setup work gone to waste. While quickly devising a new plan, they coached her on how to talk to him. Specifically, they wanted her to prompt him to talk about where Brenda was buried, to which Marianne said, quote, he talks about it all the time. That's no problem. That will happen. 
When they met at the ice cream shop about a half hour later, Detective Sharber and Agent Berthon sat in an FBI vehicle to listen to the conversation. Other officers were nearby, and they watched as Mel slid into Marianne's Pinto. And if we were keeping score here, this event would probably be a point to Mel. He did most of the talking during the 13 minutes they were recorded, mostly just telling Marianne to chill out. He never mentioned Brenda by name or the burial site specifically. So I'll read you a little bit of their back and forth just so you can get an idea of the conversation because this recording does come up later often. Um, So Marianne says, quote, plus the property has been sold. Mel, fine, it's been sold. Who'd they sell it to? Marianne, I don't know who it's been sold to. Mel, so let it be sold. Marianne, yeah, but what are you going to do when they go back? Mel, will you let me handle it? What am I going to do when who goes there? Get serious. Don't worry about what they do or what they don't do, okay? They're not going to do anything about it until there's good weather. And even if they do clear it, what are they going to put on it? A parking lot? A warehouse? Something like that. Marianne, I worry about the property back there. Mel, does it do you any good to worry about the property? All you got to do is just keep your eye on things. Don't make a spectacle of yourself and don't make an issue of it. How'd you know it was sold? Marianne. Butch's mother told him Sunday. It's in the works and it's probably sold. Mel. You do not have to talk to them. Now you're just plain fucking afraid to stand up in the face of authority. You're letting them intimidate you and they know it. So up until this point, nothing too terribly exciting or revealing, right? But then at the end of their talk, there is one very important part. Now, this is Mel talking. Quote, believe me, that's not shallow. That place we dug is not shallow, so don't let it get you rattled. Besides, that one area right by where the safe is doesn't have any trees by it. The trees are down, if you remember, so it's not a big deal. If worse comes to worse and something needs to be done, I'll handle it. A few things to note about that statement. So later on, some thought that he said where the site is instead of where the safe is. And also that he may have said the place we got and not the place we dug. Either way, I think it's still pretty incriminating, but it is important to note that there may have been a few discrepancies there. Needless to say, law enforcement officials involved were still pretty disappointed that he didn't say her name. But they had to move on, and the next logical step was to sit down with Marianne and her attorney to take a detailed official statement on the murder. And here's some of what she told them. She said that Mel had been complaining for months and had this plan in the works for a while to bring her over to Marianne's house to give her what he called a sex therapy class. She said that she had helped Mel dig that grave an entire month before they actually used it. And she also told them 
Mel wanted to use Marianne's dislike of Brenda to help, quote, get Shore involved in the sexual torture. Lieutenant Lewis Sharber, along with Assistant Commonwealth Attorneys John Stewart and Jim Lasowski, decided to arrest Mel just a few hours later. Sharber, of course, wished they had more evidence, but felt like the tape might be enough. He was worried that Mel would figure out that things were coming to a head and try to take off before they got their chance. So around 6 o'clock, they obtained a search warrant for that area Marion had taken them to to find the body. And they tried to keep that search quiet so that reporters wouldn't cover it. They didn't want Mel to know, obviously, that they were on to him. After a thorough search of the area, uh, nothing was found. So by 11.30, the first search was called off. And at 2 a.m., they went to the judge's house for a signature on the warrant to search Mel's house and arrest him. Nine officers met up, among them Berthon, Wesley, and Sharber. The Schaefer family was alerted, and there were by now reporters at the Schaefer home, at the woods by Marianne's old house, and at Mel's house in Plainview. And at 2.30 a.m., they knocked on Mel's door, headed to the kitchen, and read him his rights. And the main evidence that they were looking for was a batch of photographs. Marianne said they'd photographed the entire event the night of the murder. They searched for two and a half hours. They didn't find any photographs, but in the garage, they did find a spade with streaks of dried dirt across the blade, four trays of nails in a container, and a wooden U of L fraternity paddle with a leather strap. Upstairs, they found a sizable vibrator and some drug paraphernalia, plus a 35 millimeter camera loaded with film, and lots of his financial records, business letters, and newspaper clippings about Brenda's disappearance. And Mel was an avid note-taker. If you'll remember earlier, he actually had notes prepared for his first interview with police. This guy loved to make lists and take notes. He documented everything. And they found a calendar with entries from almost every day of the year with notes in them. But a few of the dates right around Brenda's disappearance were blotted out with heavy ink. Mel would go on to plead innocent to charges of sodomy, murder, unlawful imprisonment, and sexual abuse. Bond was set at $500,000, and on top of that, there were the federal charges of perjury and obstruction of justice. Enter Kentucky's chief medical examiner, Dr. George Nichols II. Sharber had called Nichols on January 9th to alert him that they thought he would, they would have a body soon. So when Nichols arrived later at the search area, he was a little unhappy with the way things were proceeding. He felt like they should have left the scene alone until the cadaver dogs got there. He felt like there were just too many people walking around the area. So he left. Like I said, they kind of ended the first investigation. And he said, just bring me back when the dogs have arrived. And so 
So you guys know the dog who arrived at the scene was Bingo. And Bingo was a four-year-old shepherd straight from Germany but living in Harlem. But it sounds like Bingo was a very good boy, very good at his job. So late the next morning, Nichols got the call that Bingo found a body. Brenda's body, wrapped in black plastic, was lifted from the grave at 3.42 p.m. And another package nearby contained all her clothing, but they didn't find any jewelry or her purse. Two forensic pathologists, Greg Davis and Elsie McLeod, along with Dr. Mark Bernstein, the state forensic odontologist, joined Dr. Nichols to conduct the autopsy. And listener discretion advised here. Quote, the body, wrapped in four overlapping plastic bags sealed with tan plastic mailing tape, had been buried in cool, soggy ground for almost 16 months. It had undergone a decomposition called adipocere, turning soft tissue into fat. The outer layer of the yellowing skin had dissolved. Facial features were gone. Most body hair had fallen off. The rest would fall off with a touch. The body tissues were all distorted. Not only did the decomposition make the autopsy more difficult, it made the gathering of vital crime information almost impossible. She was tied up with lots of rope, silver duct tape, and black electrical tape, and the rope was wound tightly around her head, chest, abdomen, knees, and ankles. And one really strange detail that I feel like people, it's kind of well known in this case, people were shocked to find out that she had recently had a hysterectomy. She was only 36 at the time of her death, so that would be really young for that procedure. Plus, she was Catholic, and when her parents found out, honestly, at first they were like, this probably isn't Brenda. Um, There was no record of her insurance covering it or of her taking time off uh, for the recovery. So that was just this weird little side bit of information that really made no sense. But four hours later, Dr. Nichols determined homicide by undetermined means. So she was murdered, but too far gone to identify a cause of death. But finally, Brenda Sue Schaefer would be laid to rest. And she was buried in the family plot at Cave Hill Cemetery on January 13th, 1990. So if you think about it, That chain of events happened so fast after no movement on this case for a long time. So, after they found the body, the state's case against Mel moved to the office of the Commonwealth's attorney, Ernie Jasmine. Mel was indicted on January 11th, and Marianne was also indicted, but only for tampering with evidence because of her deal. But for Mel's case, they would seek the death penalty. They had a pretrial hearing on January 16th, where, of course, Charlie Ricketts represented Mel Ignato. And the very first thing Ricketts did was make sure that Mel would be allowed to show up in court in suits and not prison attire. 
So the prosecutor, Jasmine, came to Kentucky from Florida as a tank officer at Fort Knox, but ended up graduating with a law degree from U of L. And he was also the first black Commonwealth's attorney elected in Kentucky. The judge was a man named Martin E. Johnstone. He was, quote, one of the most respected and best-liked judges in Jefferson County. He, Ricketts, and Jasmine all understood just how high-profile this case would be and acted accordingly. Meanwhile, Marianne was released until her trial, and so she went to live with a friend named Alice Bymaster in Clarksville. And Marianne was pretty open with her friend Alice. So later she said, quote, Marianne told me, or made me think, that Mel came in, locked the deadbolt, and she couldn't get out. Like, they were all prisoners in the house. And the way I thought was that he just had them all prisoners in the house. I always thought Mel made her do it. Then, a week or two later, it came out that they had pre-dug the grave. I never did confront Marianne with that. I just quit talking to her. Marianne apparently also talked to Alice about photos they'd taken and a paddle that had been used to beat Brenda. And she said that Marianne never seemed guilty or remorseful. She seemed like she just wanted Mel to herself. And Alice would go on to say that Marianne was worried about law enforcement finding the photos that Mel had hidden somewhere. She didn't know where the photos were, and that bothered her. So, the recording of Marianne and Mel talking in the car was first released publicly in early February. And er Ernie Jasmine complained that they shouldn't have released that to the public at all. And the trial date was getting pushed back again and again. Finally, everyone agreed on September 10th, 1990. Marianne was supposed to testify, but... In late May 1990, her attorney told Judge Johnstone that she wouldn't be able to because she developed Bell's palsy and she wasn't able to communicate. So she appeared in court on June 7th, walking as if she were in pain. I'm going to go ahead and say that again. She appeared in court on June 7th, walking as if she were in pain. Her left eye was covered with a big patch and she had a doctor's note from her GP But Ricketts thought she was faking it, and he hired a retired detective named Sam Hicks to go and spy on her. So, it's just like spiraling out of control now. So, Hicks parked outside Marianne's apartment and watched her go outside, carrying a basket of laundry with ease and speaking to someone as she went into the laundry room. So, Judge Johnstone ordered Marianne to be examined by a neurologist They postponed the trial again, this time to December 4th. And in mid-August, the neurologist testified that, yes, Marianne did have Bell's palsy, but, quote, the condition does not cause slurred speech and halting walk Shore had displayed. So Marianne was just lying about the effects of her condition to get out of testifying. I would have thrown her ass in jail, but I'm not in charge. Probably a good thing.
By the way, remember how I said Marianne started seeing a new guy during all this? His name was Charles Butch Inlow, and they ended up getting married while all this was going on, and they took a Caribbean cruise without telling anyone, which I don't think she was supposed to do that, but Shore did take the stand on July 24th, 1991, and Ricketts asked her why she never used Brenda's name while she was wired with Mel, and she said, quote, I don't know, I just didn't mention her name. And he said, quote, weren't you supposed to ask if Mel killed her? And she just said, I don't recall. So Ricketts asked her, quote, didn't the cops tell you to ask Mel why did he do it? Wasn't that what this whole case was about? And she said, quote, he wouldn't discuss all that stuff. He'd get upset when I said anything about it. I just wanted him to say where the body was in the ground. He never did say it. Like, yeah, Marianne, we know. Um, so Mel's mom died in May of 1990, and he was released from jail to attend the funeral. And Brenda's mom, Essie, passed away in July of 1990, and her father, John, followed in February the following year. So both her parents died before there was even a trial. Meanwhile, Mel had earned the name Reverend in jail. He had become super religious. He read scripture all day. He attended a bunch of services. He was being kept in South One, which was a fifth floor psychiatric unit for prisoners with known mental disorders or facing serious charges. He was a model prisoner. He kept his cell very neat and tidy. He never acted up, yet a lot of the guards said they felt really uneasy around him. And even though he was acting super religious in jail, he was later asked to leave Southeast Christian Church, which I just find hilarious. Now, to Mel's delight, there was a change of venue. They knew they wouldn't be able to find an unbiased jury in Jefferson County. So they moved the trial to Covington, Kentucky, in Kenton County, so almost up in Cincinnati, and opening statements would be given on December 9th, 1991. And that brings us to the end of part two of the Brenda Sue Schaefer case. Now, part three is actually the craziest and most frustrating part of this story, so definitely stay tuned. And also... Know that putting this together takes a lot of time. So if you haven't rated or reviewed me on Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it if you went and did that now. It just takes a second. Thank you kindly, and I'll see you next time.